Well, today we're wrapping up our series, Family in the Roaring Twenties. And here's what we've said from the very beginning and what we said throughout the entire series. There's an ideal and there's a real and there's a gap. There's an ideal, there's a real, and there's a gap. That our, that the, our real does not match up with the ideal. That God has a, has a standard for your family. That God has wisdom and has a standard for your family because he loves you. And God has grace for your family that falls short of his standard because he loves you. And so we've been talking about the idea that God has an ideal. He has grace for our real. And everything about God's ideas for the family flows out of his love for us. So what we've been saying, instead of trying to eliminate the ideal because, because we don't live up to it, and instead of loading people up with a load of guilt about their reality and not living up to the ideal, we're going to simply lean into both. We're going to lean into the ideal while having grace for the real. We're going to embrace an ideal that we may never reach, but we're going to strive for it, and the striving will make us better and will make our real better than it's ever been. We're going to live in that tension. Now, moving into the new content today, I want to talk about some little things in family life. I want to talk about some little things in family life. A few weeks ago, after the incredibly hot streak that we had um, in our area where it was 105 or hotter for, for, for like 10 days straight, um, our we started having some air conditioning units. And we noticed it when, when our air conditioning kind of went to the, the timer thing and it was supposed to be 74 degrees. That's what it was set to. And it had run for about two or three hours at that temperature and it was still 81 degrees downstairs in, in, our, in our house. So that's that's when we noticed it. It was really fun. It's really fun when the downstairs is 81 and the upstairs is about 93 degrees. Really, really, really fun stuff. So we had an HVAC service repairman come out the next day. As soon as we could get him to come out, he came out about noon. And when he looked at our at our, our unit, when he looked at the, the inside, when he looked at the outside unit, like he looked at it and as he started to explain what had gone wrong, I actually became very encouraged because I thought it was going to be very easy, very simple, very cheap, and very fast to fix and to repair. He pointed to this little tiny U-shaped um, pipe that, that, was, that was on the side of the unit. And he said, what happened is you got a clog in this, in this little U-shaped pipe and, and, and that's where your problem began. And I thought, well, that's good news because, the, because that looks like it should be very, very easy to replace. It's gonna be cheap. It's just a, a little PVC pipe. Um, it's gonna be quick because it's, it's not anything in the unit. It's gonna be all this kind of stuff. I was so encouraged because he said, this is where the problem started. And then he said, oh, I'm sorry, that was encouraging to you. When I say it started here, what I mean is that you got a clog here. And because there was a clog here, water backed up into your blower and it froze in the blower. And that, and because your blower was frozen, that caused your compressor, your 14 year old compressor to overload and to burn out. And so now we have to replace your compressor. And if you know anything about HVAC systems, a compressor is not easy to replace, not cheap to replace, not fast to replace. Nothing about it was going to be simple. And so I was like, oh man, this is going to be expensive. This is going to be a, like, like a whole day with, with, with it not working, maybe even a little bit longer because everything is like, you know, not able to get parts and everything. So he's able to find a compressor and we thought, well, maybe, maybe, maybe that solved the problem, but that didn't solve the problem. And actually, as I talk, as I talk today, as I, as we record this today, we are still waiting three and a half weeks later for another part that, that we hope will 
actually be the real solution uh, that gets our that gets our HVAC and gets our air conditioning back fully functional. It has been a hot, long, frustrating few weeks in the in the Weiss household. Now, as as, as I was talking the other day to our H, to the HVAC guy when he when he was out, as I was talking to Joe, uh, I I said to him, man, it's it's so frustrating because you know again, it's just this little little part, it's this little part that that like set this whole thing off. Like that's really frustrating. Like I was so encouraged. I thought like when you said it was just this little part, I thought that that meant that it was going to be a really simple little thing. It's just such a little thing. And he said, and I quote, this is a good reminder that if we don't take care of the small things, they become really big things. If we don't take care of the small things, they become really big things. Now, in the course of family life, in the course of marriage, in the course of parenting, in the course of being a child of a parent, being an adult child of a parent, being a grandparent, being in-laws, in the course of family life, there are little things that if we don't handle them properly, they can undermine everything that we hope and that we dream family could be. They undermine everything that we know God has called family to be. They undermine the good that God has for us when it comes to these most important relationships, our family relationships. And so today, as we close out this series, I want to talk about a few of the little things, a few of the little things, because it's possible that you have overlooked some of the little things that, that have become big things. And if they haven't become big things yet, what I hope to do is to spare you some heartache so that they don't become big things, but you learn to pay attention to the little things. And if they have become big things. And if you've experienced some of that heartache, I hope today to give you a way forward as we talk about some of these little things. The first one that I want to talk about today is about decision-making. It's about decision-making within the family. In Amos chapter 3, verse 3, the prophet Amos, speaking to the nation of Israel, he wrote this. He said, can two people walk together without agreeing on the direction? Can two people walk together without agreeing on the direction? In Amos, this is a rhetorical question. The answer is obviously, well, no. Two people cannot walk together if they have not agreed upon a direction. They, they, they cannot do that. You, you cannot do that. And here's what family is, though. Family is two or three or four or five or six people trying to walk through life together but often in family, we're trying to walk together without ever agreeing on the direction. You know, that like, like this, this happens so often without ever actually deciding where we're ultimately going. And so here's a little phrase that I, would love, that, that I think can have a big impact on a family. For good, if you choose this, for damage, if you ignore this. In our family, we make decisions together. In our family, we make decisions together. And I'm telling you, this sounds so small. It would be easy for us to overlook and, dis and dismiss, dismiss this as unimportant. But this is actually a really big deal. This plays out in some pretty big ways, especially as parents and as spouses with each other. Let me talk to parents for a second. Parents, in the course of family life um, and in the course of big decisions, you're going to carry the majority of the weight when it comes to making big decisions for your family, especially when your children are small. But even throughout the course of your life and of your family, you're called to lead the family. You're going to carry most of the weight of, of, of making decisions as a family. But 
As, as your children go, grow older, let me give you a pro tip here. Include your children in the process of making big family decisions. Include your children in the process of making big family decisions. This accomplishes two really important things. The first is it helps your children develop the thought process that, it, that will eventually be prepared to make big life decisions and will someday make big family decisions of their own because someday they'll be a mom, they'll be a dad, they'll be a husband, they'll be a wife, they'll be the ones who are responsible for making decisions for their family. And if you are a good, loving parent, you will help them develop the thought process for then by making, by including them in small ways in the process today. This is, this is, this is a big deal, but there's, there's a bigger, more relationship-driven reason to include your children in the thought processing process decision, in, the, in, the, in making big decisions as a family. It, what what the, the bigger re- reason to inc- include them more as they grow older is that it communicates that you care about them. When you include them and when you hear them out, when you listen to their opinion, it, it, it automatically lets them know that you care about them. It communicates that you care. You may not choose what they would choose, but it's incredibly important that your child feels heard when it comes to big, potentially life-altering changes for the family and for them. This is something that you don't have to do, but this is something that great parents do. I remember my parents doing this while they were making a, a pretty big decision in regard to church um, when, when I was growing up. I, th- I think I was nine or 10 years old when, when, when this was happening, but um, my, par- my parents and our family had unfortunately gotten kind of sideways and right in the middle of some conflict within our church, all, all revolving around um, some things that, that revolved around the way the, the church leadership was handling some things. And my family um, had gotten so in the middle of the conflict, my parents were really very ser- seriously considering leaving the church um, that we had gone to my, my entire life. I was nine or 10 years old at this point. Um, and, and I remember they, they I, if, the way I remember it, they were starting to talk, like they had already begun talking about the church that we were going to go to once we officially left um, the, the, the church that we had gone to our entire life. And it was about 45 minutes away from where we lived. We lived kind of you know, in, in this small little town with a bunch of small towns. And so it was a, an, another small town that we were going to be driving to to go to the church that they had kind of already decided this was where we were going to go. And I remember at dinner one night, my parents kind of like, we were talking about it and they said, well, you know, kids, what do you guys think about this decision? And I remember at nine or 10 years old saying like, well, all of my friends are, are at church. I, I don't really want to leave all my friends. And, and, and I'll just say this, that, that was not just a nine or 10 year old, like, I don't want to leave my friends. Like I've mentioned this before, we were a homeschool family. And at that point in, in, our, in our life, in the life of our family, literally, my, my, myself and my sister, all of our friends were at church. All of the significant relationships that we had, all of the significant you know, friendships that we had were connected to that church. And, and, and nothing else was said that, you know, my parents didn't go, wow, we hadn't think it, thought of that. Like nothing else. I don't remember anything else really being said, but here's what, here's what I know ultimately happened. Somewhere along, I don't know if, I don't know if that sparked it. I don't know if that was what caused it. I've, we've never really talked about it, but I know that ultimately my parents made the decision that we were going to stay at a church that they had, I'm pretty sure decided to leave. And let me tell you what that did. Now, like this, this is this is why why I tell that story. 
for the rest of my life, through, through middle school, through high school, through, through college, while, while they still had a lot of influence in my life as they were you know, financially supported, through, even up to, to this day where I still sometimes will call and ask for advice, there has never been a time where I wondered if my parents cared about me. That they would include me in a, what was a pretty major decision for our family at 9 or 10, that they wanted to know my opinion, even if they ultimately didn't decide to go with it, that they cared enough to ask for my opinion in a big family decision. Let me know in a crystal clear way they cared. And as a middle school student, as a high school student, again, there are plenty of disagreements, plenty of times where we were fighting about stuff, plenty of times where we were arguing about things, but there was never in any of those moments a single time where I thought, well, this is because they don't care. I knew my parents cared about me, and I knew that they cared because they involved me in big family decisions. That's how this plays out as a parent. If you want to communicate that you care about your children, you will involve them and include them in big family decisions. In our family, we make, big, we make decisions together. In our family, we make decisions together. Now, as spouses, this plays out in another big way, in a, in, a, in a little bit of a different way, and I want to talk about that for a second. See, obviously, husbands and wives should make big, big decisions together. That is not a break. That's not breaking news. That's hopefully, like, if you're not doing that, husbands and wives should make big decisions together. Um, that's, that, that's, that's a big, that's a, a, you know, foundational part of this, but there's a deeper aspect of this. There's a dangerous version of this that I've seen play out with way too many couples and it can be devastating to a marriage. Here's what so often happens. A decision has to be made. So a couple makes a decision, but one person wasn't a big fan of the decision that was made. So they move forward half-hearted, maybe quarter-hearted. They don't put any energy into making things work. And then when things don't work out, they go, well, I never thought that was a good idea in the first place. Does anybody know what I'm talking about right now? Like, don't like, don't like the video right now. Like, this would be a bad time to like like the video. But like, this 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 happens so often. This happens so frequently. Matter of fact, a few years ago, I was I was doing some pre-marriage counseling with a couple, and one of them said that they that this is something they tend to do, and they laughed about it. And in a moment of pastoral boldness, I said, "Look, I don't think you should be laughing about this." By the fact, but like, I think this is something that you need to address. And if you don't address this, I actually don't think you should even get married because you will spend the entirety of your marriage undermining the very marriage that you want to build. This is a thing that you have to get under control. And so it was a really, really fun pastoral counseling session right there. But here's the thing, I get it. There are decisions that have to be made sometimes on a timeline where we can't feel 100% about it when we make the decision. And to that dynamic, I just want to give this piece of advice. You make the decision right, even if you're not sure it's the right decision. You make the decision right, even if you're not sure it's the right decision. You can make a decision right, even if it's not the right decision. You can, with your energy, with your effort, with your passion, with your wholehearted effort, you can make a decision right, even if you're not sure it's, not, it's the right decision. In an ideal world, we would always make the right decision. In an ideal world, we would all be, have the time to make every decision and get everyone fully 100% on the board, but we don't live in an ideal world. We live in a real world. But even So even when you can't can't or don't make the right decision, you can make the decision work if you're willing to put your full energy behind making the decision work. Without this, we end up pulling in opposite directions. We, we end up walking together without fully agreeing on the direction, and we get what I would call sideways energy. People are expending energy in opposite directions, and it never really accomplishes 
anything. We end up pulling against each other. When we bring all of our energy and our effort in the same direction, it's called unity. And as Pastor Rob Ketterling once said, there's nothing faster than the speed of unity. There's nothing faster than the speed of unity. Even when we can't be be sure that we've made the right decision, we can make the decision right. In this family, we make decisions together. It's a little thing. It's a big deal. In this family, we make decisions together. Let me give you the the second little thing. Patience. (laughs) Patience. Patience. Within the context of family, patience is a big deal. Let me read a verse from 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4. It says this, love is patient. In in, in modern day terminology, that's the tweet. That's it. That's the the tweet. Love is patient. Now, if if you've ever been to a Christian wedding, you know there's a lot more to that passage. You know there's a lot more things that Paul would go on to say that love is. But I think it's really intriguing that the very first thing that Paul begins with is to say, if you, you want to know what love is, let me tell you what love is. Love is patient. Love is patient. And if you were to look at the Greek and to understand the Greek language, when, when Paul uses this word that we have translated as patient, the, a really accurate, maybe the best translation that we could get for the word patient would be to, that love is willing to move at the speed of another. Love is willing to move at the speed of another. Love is willing to move at the speed of the other. This is a big idea because in the context of family, chances are not everyone naturally moves at the same pace, right? You figured that out. You figured that out like four minutes after you got married. Like as soon as you got back from the honeymoon, maybe even on the honeymoon, husbands and wives all figured out that they don't necessarily move at the same speed as the other. Chances are pretty good because God has a sense of humor that in your family, about half of you are kind of fast paced and about half of you have a little bit slower natural pace. And what's really funny about this is that the fast-paced people tend to think of ourselves as, as really laid back, and, and, the, and the people who have a little bit slower pace tend to think of themselves as really ambitious and, 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 rather, and rather fast. And in, in a great ironic twist, in, in our family, the fast-paced people are, are slow eaters, and the slower-paced people are the fastest eaters on the planet. God has a sense of humor with who he brings together. But here's what's great. To everyone in the family, fast pacers and slow pacers, to on-timers and to running laters, Paul says love is willing to move at the speed of another. Love is willing to move at the speed of another. Love is willing to move at a pace that's not your natural so that you can be with someone else. Love is willing to be inconvenienced to be with the people that you love. Now, parents, we naturally understand this when our kids are young. When you're out on a a family walk, when you go for a family walk with young kids, you move at the pace of the kids, right? You know you can walk faster than your kids, but you choose not to because you're going to walk at the pace of your kids. When our family goes for a walk, we don't move at my pace or at Jalen's pace. We move at the pace of our girls. Sometimes the girls want to run, and so we run. And I think I shouldn't have worn flip-flops on this walk. I should have worn actual shoes. And sometimes they want to move at the pace of snails. Sometimes they want to walk and smell every flower and pick up every rock and, and, and go, oh my goodness, the sky. And I'm thinking, 
I'm gonna die, you know, and, and, it's, and, it's, and we move so, so, so slow. As parents, we also know that that's okay on the sidewalk, but if we're crossing a street, we don't move at the pace of a child. We move at the pace of get across the street so we don't get hit, all right? Either way, we, rec- we ultimately recognize this. We move best when we move together. We move best when we move together. And here's the lesson in this. If you want to avoid some future heartache, here's the lesson. People who want to move fast all the time and they make the rest of the family feel bad for not keeping up, we judge and kind of, you know, like we bring conviction and condemnation on, on the rest of the family because they're not ready when, we, when we're ready. And I mean, we're ready 20 minutes early, but who cares about that? Like we, we, we're just coming, come on, keep, keep, keep going, keep, keep going. We, we constantly get in our kids because we want them to learn faster. We want them to move faster. It's possible that in your trying to get everyone to move at your pace, you might be pushing them to move faster than they want to move, but you're probably also pushing them away. And if you don't want to push away the people that you love, you may need to be willing to move at the pace of another, move at the speed of another. And here's the other part of it, the other side of this. For people who are always asking people to be patient with you, just wait for me, just wait up for what just like, it's possible that if you are constantly asking people to wait for you, you may need to actually be willing to move at the speed of another, and you may need to actually speed up a little bit. You may need to be the person who says, I'm willing to inconvenience myself so that I can actually move at the speed of another. We find a middle ground. In our family, here's the big deal. In our family, we move best when we move together. In our family, we move best when we move together. I'm willing to inconvenience myself. I'm willing to move at a speed that is not my natural so that we can move together. We move best when we move together. It's a little thing, but it's a big deal. When we talk about the third one, here's the, here's the third little thing that can be such a big thing. Conflict. Conflict. Anyone have conflict in your family? Matter of fact, if you're watching this right now and you've ever had conflict with a family member, would you hit the angry emoji? Would you hit a like? Would you let me know that you've, at some point in your life, you've had conflict with your family? Again, that's, that's, that's all of us. That's all of us because conflict is inevitable. Conflict is inevitable in life. Anytime you put more than one person in a room or in a house together for any extended period of time, conflict is inevitable in life. You can have conflict with coworkers. You can have conflict with roommates that you're not, that you're not related to. You can have con- conflict with people at school. You can have conflict just about anywhere you go. If you're trying hard enough, you can have conflict with a random stranger on the street. I mean, I don't, I don't think that's a really good idea, but if you're trying hard enough, you can have conflict with just about anyone. Conflict is inevitable in life and conflict is inevitable in family because you put two or three or four or five people together and they have 168 hours in a week and a limited number of dollars to spread around to different priorities. And sometimes they have to pick the same place, the same restaurant to eat at and and figure out what we're going to make for dinner and who's going to clean up after dinner and who's watching the kids and who's taking care of the kids and and why are the kids not listening to mom and dad. And you have all kinds of different personalities. And some people in the family, let's be honest, have multiple personalities. And you put all of that together in one house and you're going to have conflict. Conflict is unavoidable, but here's the good news. Conflict is inevitable, but conflict doesn't have to be unhealthy. Conflict is inevitable, but conflict doesn't have to be unhealthy. See, James 4 gives us a warning about where our natural tendencies with conflict tend to take us. He said this in James chapter 4, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but don't have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. 
when you ask, you don't receive because you ask with the wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. The reason we have conflict is because I'm not getting what I want, right? That's what's at, at the heart of every conflict within the family. You want real? That's real. That happens way too often because this is where we naturally go. And even those, uh, those of us who are conflict avoiders, who like to sweep everything under the rug, when the rug eventually piles up and you trip over the rug, this is where we all go. This is where we all naturally go. This is our natural real. But then Paul, the Apostle Paul, James gave us the real. Paul then pointed to an ideal, a better way, a better a, a, a thing to strive for because striving for this would improve our family reality. He said this in Ephesians chapter 4. He said, in your anger, do not sin. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. Paul says, getting angry is natural. He says, he says there's, no, there's nothing wrong with getting angry. There's nothing wrong with getting aggravated. There's nothing wrong with getting frustrated. That's all natural parts of living in a house and sharing a life with other people. So Paul, so Paul has no problem with you getting angry. He almost expects that you would get angry. But Paul wanted to make sure that when you get angry, you don't sin by getting even. That when you get angry, you don't sin by getting back at them. That you don't sin by getting revenge. That you don't sin by getting your way at the cost of the relationship. Paul was ultimately concerned about how you handle your anger. How you handle your conflict. Paul, holding up this ideal, says handle conflict in a way that resolves it as quickly as possible and handle your conflict in a way that doesn't leave an opening for the, for the devil to gain influence in your relationship. He says when you leave conflict unresolved, you leave an opening for the devil to gain a foothold to, 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 to build bitterness, to build anger so that you don't just get angry and get over it, but that you actually get angry and you stay angry. He leaves a foothold for rage to come in, leaves a foothold for all kinds of things. He says, don't give that opportunity. You handle your conflict well and you handle your conflict quickly. Here's the implication. You choose how you handle conflict. You choose how you handle conflict. Conflict can be healthy if you handle it in a healthy way. Conflict will be unhealthy if you handle it in an unhealthy way. How you handle conflict determines if conflict is healthy or unhealthy. How you treat the person who has wronged you determines whether conflict is healthy or un unhealthy. And so here's the decision that we make in, 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 our, in our family. In our family, we handle conflict healthy. And that's terrible English. That's bad grammar. I, I apologize to anyone watching who really cares about the English language. In our family, we handle conflict healthy. Healthy means we don't avoid it because you can't avoid conflict forever. And the longer you avoid it, the larger it grows and it becomes a tripping hazard. And you will trip over it and you will blow someone up with it eventually. So that's unhealthy. You also, you, like, it, it also means that you don't win at all costs. For some of you who are competitors, like I'm a competitor and you like to win, it means that you don't break out the big guns and drop the hammer and bring out everything that you've got and let them know X, Y, Z to get your way. It means you don't win at all costs. That's also unhealthy. It means you find a middle way. Healthy means you fight for a way forward. Healthy means you fight for a way forward. This is a little thing. In our, in our family, we handle conflict healthy. It seems like a little thing. This is a big deal. And finally, because conflict is so common, let me give you the fourth thing that the fourth small thing that might just be a big thing for your family. It's the idea of forgiveness. 
the idea of forgiveness. See, because conflict is so natural, forgiveness needs to be a habit in your family. Because conflict is so natural, forgiveness needs to be a habit in, for you in relation to your family. In the course of family life, you will be hurt. You will say things to each other that are hurtful and sometimes are untrue. Sometimes they'll be hurtful and they'll be true. You will be offended on accident. You will probably also be offended on purpose where the other person meant to offend you by their actions and by what they said. Nothing, to, to, to paraphrase something that I saw on Facebook, nothing hurts as much as family. Nothing hurts as often as family. And that's not because family is worse than anything else. It's because, because of the nature of proximity, being around family more than anything else, being around family more than anyone, being around family more than anyone else. Family has more opportunity to hurt than anything else. Family hurts Nothing hurts as much as family. Nothing hurts as much as family. That's reality. That's reality. But again, into that reality, the Apostle Paul holds up an ideal. He holds up a way to move forward. In Ephesians 4, verse 31 and 32, he says this, Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. He says, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other forgiving each other. And then he throws this thing on the end. Forgiving each other just as in Christ, God forgave you. Just as in Christ, God forgave you. See, Paul holds up the, God's example of forgiveness. Paul holds up God's example of forgiveness. He says, this is the ideal, that when you're hurt, you would act towards the person that hurt you the same way that God has acted towards you. They extend the same forgiveness towards them that God has extended towards you. And here's what God's forgiveness looks like. It's complete complete forgiveness. It covers everything that you have done wrong. Not just the things that you think you've done wrong. It covers everything. That's what God's forgiveness towards you is. It's unconditional, meaning whether you change or not, God brings forgiveness for, for your sin. Now, God wants you to move forward so that you would stop doing the things that hurt you and hurt others and damage your relationship with him, but his forgiveness is unconditional conditional. Before you change, before you make any promises to God, God offers unconditional grace. God offers a forgiveness where there is no record of wrongs. He wipes the slate clean. He wipes the slate clean. There is no record of wrongs. And he gives forgiveness before you asked for it. Think of this, before you were ever alive, before you ever would sin and before you would ever know that you had a need for a Savior, God provided a Savior when he sent Jesus to live among us, to die for all of us, to raise from the dead so that we could be invited into a new life and a new relationship with our Heavenly Father. Before you knew you needed it, God provided forgiveness. God put forgiveness on the table before you ever knew you would need it. That's what God did for you so that you could have a relationship with him and so that he could have a relationship with you. That's the gospel. That's the good news of how much God loves you and the lengths that he went to be with you and, and that why he sent Jesus on the cross of what he, the lengths that he would go to have a relationship and to provide a relationship with you. That may be what you have to do in order for you to have a relationship and have a healthy relationship within your family. See, you'll be offended and you can choose to forgive. You'll be hurt and you can choose to forgive. They'll say things that cut deep, and you can choose to forgive. They'll be late over and over and over again, and you can choose to forgive. They'll be irresponsible, and you can choose to forgive. 
that whatever they've done that hurt you, that affected you, that impacted you, you can choose to forgive. And if relationship is going to be healthy, if relationship is going to improve, if relationship is going to last in the face of all the conflict that happens within a family, forgiveness has to be a habit. You could say it this way. In our family, we forgive like Jesus. In our family, we forgive like Jesus. In our family, we forgive like Jesus. See, it's the little things. It's the little things. And they make a big difference. And they make a big impact. And it could have a big impact on your family. This could, if you pay attention to these things, it'll spare you some heartache in the future. If you, if you decide that you're going to fix some things, that some little things that have become big things in your life, it'll spare you heartache to come. And it'll begin to repair some of the things that have broken in your family relationships. It's the little things. And they make a big difference. And like we said every single week, you're not going to get this right all the time. You're never going to be perfect for this. You're never going to meet the ideal. You're going to live in the real world. But maybe, just maybe, if we strive for an ideal while experiencing God's grace for a real, this is how our families come roaring back in the 2020s. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for who you are. Thank you for your grace for our reality, for the days and the ways that we fall short and continue to fall short and will continue to fall short. Thank you that your grace is abundant and that your grace abounds for us. Thank you that it is more than we could ever ask or imagine. Thank you that that kind of grace exists. And God, thank you that there is wisdom for our way forward. God, that for the areas that we have fallen short and that we have hurt each other and that we've not lived up to who we're supposed to be, thank you that you point continually to a better way. So God, in our families, would you help us to decide together? Would you help us to get better at deciding together and moving forward together and pulling our weight all in the same direction so that we can make the decision right? God, for for those of us who want to rush or want to stay in our own lane and stay at our own pace, God, help us to be patient the way you define patience. Help us to be willing to move at the speed of another so that we can be with the person that we love the most, with the people that we love the most. God, help us to handle conflict in a way that's healthy, not unhealthy. Help conflict not to tear us apart, but to actually bring us together. And God, help us to decide that we're going to forgive like you forgave through Jesus. God, for those of us who right now maybe need to make a decision to accept that grace that you have extended through Jesus, God, may we make that decision right now to trust you, to love you, to trust Jesus' work on the cross, and his work when he came out of the grave as enough to reconnect us with you, our heavenly Father. And God, would your example be enough to to lead us towards forgiveness within the context of our families? Help us to forgive like Jesus. God, help us to pay attention to these little things. We know they become big things. So God, help us to do what you want us to do in the little things so that we we can experience your grace and your love and your power in a really big way in our family. We love you, God. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.